Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. We come to you every Friday, and as always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to discuss the contents of Another Weekends, which is kind of like our Christian cosmopolitan's grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs for the week, as we see them anyway. But first, I had the privilege last week of being in New Haven, Connecticut at Yale University and speaking with Miroslav Volf, professor of theology there, author of numerous books, including most recently, Flourishing, Why We Need Religion in a Globalized World, and Public Faith in Action, along with Ryan mcnally Linz which is about how to think carefully, engage wisely, and vote with integrity. Two great books on the role of religion in public life. My conversation with Miroslav Volf. Here I am uh, for the first time on The Mockingcast with Professor Miroslav Wolf, who has, you've had a distinguished career over the past couple decades. I've been reading your stuff for a while, and Nietzsche is in the background of a lot of stuff you've done. I think it's my favorite philosopher. And he says that, that all philosophy is the personal confession of the philosopher. He also says that the best thing you can do with yourself is develop a sense of style. So is your theology in some sense confession, and how is your sense of style shaped up as a theologian? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, lo- I love the last part, the sense of uh, style. Um, well, I, I'm sure st- style is in many ways uh, kind of the substance and to uh, flow into uh, one another. Um, but the other, the, the other question, part of the question, I think, is uh, to me more important to what extent my theology is in some ways... Um, not just confessional from the standpoint from which it comes, I take it, but that it kind of articulates the life that in certain way intends to be yeah, in some lived. Sense, it's, it, it's theology's God's story, but in some sense, it's, it's your story too, right? I mean, That's right. And, and in some ways, it comes out of the story and seeks to embody the story, seeks to lead to a, a story of life. I think that that's quite right. And then sometimes, I, I once I've said, I believe it, uh, that... I think that my theology, if there is such a thing as my theology, is really a kind of explicating writing out of the lives that my parents and my saintly nanny have lived. I kind of see myself as aspiring to some such life and articulating that kind of life in my own uh, in my own writing, they were the kind of hermeneutical lens for me to read uh, the scripture. So um, these lives, which were embodied, which portrayed for me the gospel in what was the most beautiful way, notwithstanding the fact that uh, I was faced with a kind of severe, relentless criticism of faith, and that I witness. Uh, good reasons why such relentless criticism of the Christian faith uh, should be there. Nonetheless, I came away observing their lives with the sense that 
faith is this beautiful treasure. So if adult faith, I mean, I like in just pastoral work, I want to not like recording interviews. <laughs> like, I think adult faith usually takes three forms. It's either evolution, right? Like people may, may not believe the same thing they were raised in, but things they've set aside weren't tumultuous. There's a kind of, and then there's revolution. Sometimes people come from mm-hmm. very conservative homes or very nominally, nominal homes and have to kind of reorient. And then there's conversion. So it sounds like you were kind of in the evolution category. That you know, that's that's tough to to say. I I don't know how to apply, it, but but I think more generally that, that that might be the case. There was a point when I rejected faith. There was a point when I thought that that which my father, that which my parents, my nanny were giving me, was not so much not beautiful or not uh, desirable, but it was just too difficult to bear. Is that intellectually or existentially? Intellectually and existentially. Intellectually, it wasn't presented in the way that to me was at that time uh, compelling. It wasn't presented in a particularly intellectually compelling way, and I didn't have at that time uh, resources to think in sophisticated ways about it. But also, I think more importantly, it was difficult uh, personally in some ways. It demanded too much. I wasn't sure that that demand uh, is worth responding uh, to. Um, and hence, I kind of rejected. Uh, I think I rejected earlier, you asked about style in a very narrow sense of the term. I think I partly rejected it because of the lack of fit with the style. <laughs> uh, um, certain, certain narrow understanding of, of style. It seems to be the uh, uh, faith that didn't fit, faith that dressed in the wrong way, that spoke in the wrong way, that listened to the wrong kind of music, all the different things that to my uh, teenage self were really important. But you seem to be able to talk about it with a a warm appreciation. Right now I am, right? At that that time I I wasn't. Um, And in that sense, I think uh, what, what you describe as evolutionary uh, I think in some way, some ways is, is right. I don't think there was a break with this faith and finding a faith that ended up being some different faith set in opposition to the faith that I have seen in my parents and in my nanny with all the uh, limitations of their articulation of that faith. Uh, you know, I've come away with the sense that kind of the beauty of the, <laughs> I'm hesitant to say, but the thing itself. The beauty of what I discovered as I kind of resonated with what I saw in the Gospels, what I saw as highly desirable in my own life, the beauty of that uh, ex- uh, uh, expressed in their lives was just uh, uh, compelling. And I hugely admire them, and I think that uh, a kinds of things I can articulate are a stutterings of their lives and that their lives are much more important than anything that I can articulate. That's beautiful. You started, your book, Exclusion and Embrace, was one of my favorite theological texts that's written in the past couple of decades. I mean, it's a wonderful book. And one of the things Thank you. I appreciate, it, sometimes you can see, I guess, students' strengths and weaknesses sometimes, but this, I'm thinking of a strength, like, of, of a teacher, like I thought, I think some of Jurgen Moltmann, your teacher's best stuff is theological exegesis when he's thinking through the scriptures and, and not lost in higher critical things, but really theologically interpreting them in a way that gives makes them a gospel lens on the culture and ourselves. Uh, so you've done some some of, of the best stuff, like Bart or Bonhoeffer, Moltmann would do, and yet you're also someone that's deeply interested in public theology. Now, is it too much of an oversimplification to say that? 
at least over the past few decades, the people that were interested in sort of rigorous biblical theology tended to not want to do a lot of public theology. And the people that wanted to do public theology didn't want to sort of have a mouthful of uh, Christianese or theological terms. So you seem to be kind of walking a line where you're, you're doing theology with an eye to the public square, but you do it. There's no, your, your Christian accent is not, is not muted. Yeah, but I would say that all three people that you mentioned, um, Bart, Bonhoeffer, and Moltmann, were just such uh, theologians. Maybe uh, may- even more in America, like may- maybe maybe the uh, maybe that's maybe that's true more in America, where kind of this distinction between public and private seems to be uh, at least in some circles much more strongly accentuated. But I think I've learned uh, quite a bit from uh, from all three that you that you mentioned, and I've come to think that the very private things that we experience. The most private of private things is the shape of our desire, for instance. Hmm. But at the same time, it is so incredibly of public import. (laughs) It is so significantly publicly shaped (laughs) so that that's which utterly private to myself is an echo of something that's public and has ramification for the shape of my own stance in the public, for the shape of the of the common good. So just put it very simply, I could never separate uh, the two. And in some ways, you could you could see it in a strange way. Uh, I grew up in in a communist society. Now there, you had a highly private faith, right? Because uh, communists wouldn't let the faith come into uh, into public. There was this community; it's communal. It was it was private, and yet paradoxically. It was very private, but being just that. <laughs> hmm. uh, I'm sorry, very public, by being just private. Right? It was they communists thought that it was public because they seek to uh, sought to uh, kind of control it in many ways. And there, uh, I discovered that we, who, no matter who we are and whatever we privately and communally do, have public. Uh, import. Now the question then becomes, how do we consciously live that public side of the faith without simply forgetting about that public faith is not about structures out there, that's as much about interior life and both, in a sense, belong mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. Soul and society mirror each other. Yeah, especially in a consumer society, right, where our desires can be just reified on the internet or with credit cards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a theologian, like when you're not in academic circles, you know, or or in your academic circles at a university like Yale, where people are probably there's probably it's a blue state urban area, probably a lot of people that aren't in any religious tradition. When you're at a cocktail party and say, "Oh, Professor Wolf, you're you know, I, I'm in theology." Like, how do, how do you describe what you do to people that don't have a sense for it, or even at a church cocktail party or something? Like, how do you de- how do you yeah. describe your vocation in words that people that are not at American Academy of Religion types get it? Or or or, uh, or in the airplane, which sometimes what do you do? Uh, I teach systematic theology, and you can just see the eyes glaze. Then I shifted. Well, I teach uh, theology. Well, that's a little bit more interesting. But what? How, how am I concerned with so like theology? If you, if you want to talk to the person, or you say I'm, I'm at Yale and I'm interested in religion and society. If you want to go to sleep, you tell them you're a theologian. You can yeah, yeah it's kind, of, kind of like. Or if I yeah, if I want them to sleep, I tell them I teach systematic theology. If I want them to be to be interested, then I tell them what I actually do. Hmm. And what I actually do is I get paid by Yale to reflect about the most important questions that motivate and drive 
our lives. Hmm. That is, what does it mean to succeed, not in one or the other endeavor that we undertake, but what does it mean to, quote-unquote, succeed in the endeavor that is life itself? What is a well-lived life? What are the conditions for well-lived life? What does it mean to uh, to flourish? What does it mean to flourish in the context of a particular traditions and set of convictions you have? And how do you justify that? How do you explain that to folks who have very different um, uh, persu- persuasions? I think that's a that's amazing to me that actually I get paid to do mm. this kind of work. Beautiful. And your most recent book, which touches on, I mean, you can't get a bigger lens, basically. I mean, you're talking about why religion is necessary mm-hmm. for human flourishing in a globalized world. I mean, and you think that somehow there's this, that, that you can't separate out, if we're going to be healthy, our, tran- our connection to the transcendent reality. Right, right, right. And maybe the, the vertical and the horizontal, like, for prosperity and human flourishing. So you're trying to work out a relationship between the yeah. great religious traditions and what makes sustenance in a globalized world? Well, you know, you take just a question of uh, economy. And one of the claims that I make in the book, Flourishing, is economic problem cannot be solved by economic means alone. Because economic problem isn't economic problem. <laughs> it's a human heart a kind of a problem. If you want to solve the economic problem, so to say, you have to realize that we do not live by bread alone. That we are being software opening, open to and need, in need of transcendence so that we can actually not project uh, our search for infinity onto finite goods and therefore have an economy that is predicated on malcontentment and yet we expect that economy to make us content. <laughs> um, you see immediately how the desires of my heart, economic system that we uh, in- inhabit and the whole directionality of, of uh, our individual lives are wrapped up uh, here in one thing. And I think those kinds of questions, to tease them out, to make them compelling to ourselves and make them compelling to others, this is what drives me, what motivates me to do the work of theologian. Now, you, um, in the book you talk about um, certain kinds of religious exclusivism that, uh, that are not going to go away and, and need to sort of um, let traditions be particular uh, and, and be able to speak in public life as tradition pe- people, and yet also having a politics that makes space for that. Uh, so there's a little give and take on both the traditions, uh, but, but you, they don't want to give too much so that they become kind of bland or put, and, and also politics, you know, can't be enslaved anywhere. The traditions like, how do you, so you, you got, you've got, you think that this can be artfully pulled off. Yeah, no, no, I, I do think, I, actually, I do think that one can be, strictly speaking, religious exclusivist, particularist, in the sense that one believes that one own, one's own faith, even one's own version of faith, is the true faith, and at the same time, embrace pluralism as a political project. And uh, the reason why I think that that's possible is because it's actual, and it was actual, more the reason I believe that's possible is because the progenitors of pluralism as a political project 
were religious exclusivists. They believe that their faith is the only true faith. But just because of the convictions of that faith, they also believe that equal rights, uh, equal protection ought to be given to every single individual, no matter what they believe or believe or don't believe, right? Hmm. So, so I think we make a mistake, uh, as we often do as, uh, you know, um, many, many of my, uh, uh, f- f- folks w- with whom I have a, a great cordial relationship, including Tony Blair, who taught course with me on faith and globalization. He believed, in, and many people believe, that somehow religious exclusivism and political exclusivism must go hand in hand. So that you have to become religious pluralist, basically saying everybody's religion is uh, equally true, uh, and there are just different ways to to come to one ultimate reality. You have to be that kind of a religious pluralist in order to be political pluralist. I think that's completely false. And I think that the future of our pluralistic societies in partly depend on the ability of religious exclusivists to come to terms with the idea themselves that it's possible for them to remain religious exclusivists but at the same time embrace pluralism as a political project. That's key. Otherwise, we're going to clash all the time. We won't be able to articulate our uh, convictions in such a way that they contribute to common good because common good is common life is pluralistically structured. And then either the Christian faith is going to be totalitarian, seeking to suppress difference, or it's going to end up being sectarian, kind of pendling between totalitarianism and sectarianism, because we have simply not grasped a very uh, simple theological truth, namely that you can have a sturdy conviction that somebody should have right to be who they are. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, one of of my favorite books you wrote was called Free of Charge. Mm. uh, for giving and forgiving, right? In a, in a, a culture stripped of grace. Yeah, culture stripped of grace. I, I love that book. And in mean, Mockingbird, uh, part of what really animates what we do is we think there's something in that law gospel tradition that there's all these little L laws, whether it's parental expectation or success, or the, the law is not just a moral thing, but it's tyrannical demands on us. Do you think that there's something in that tradition, like in 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 some of the you, you say you kind of reimagined, revisited vigorously Luther and Paul. Is there something in public life, like if we thought we were really sinners saved, saved by a, a radical grace that maybe mm-hmm. would make us more charitable interlocutors, uh, would would make us a little more humble epistemically about our claims, uh, yeah. if that tradition, because it's a tradition that sometimes falls on hard times today. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I completely agree, uh, agree with you. Um, uh, I, I think our lives private and public in uh, moder- uh, in the context of modernity are too moralizing and too moralized. And so we don't have, as a consequence, uh, ability to kind of live with ambiguities. We don't have the ability, Christians certainly, uh, especially in the puritanical strand, don't have ability to live with kind of simul justus et peccator. I'm a sinner and I'm justified at the same time. And no matter how hard I try, I'm not going to ever reach uh, some kind of uh, perfection. Therefore, I can't have a long nose looking down on on people and, and judge them because they don't satisfy some moral moral law. Um, I, I think 
presence of grace in individual life and presence of acceptance uh, in the broad spectrum of public life also, in a sense, mirror uh, each other, go to each other. Those who tend to be really harsh on themselves tend to also want to impose that harshness uh, on others, if for no other reason, to be able to control their communal and their public uh, public world. And uh, I think that the message of uh, of grace, of radical grace, message of grace that is driven not by sense of despair, as some people portray Luther having been driven, but that is driven by the message of radical gift and love. Luther's main question, I think, this is very controversial, but Luther's main question, I think, at the bottom is, how do I love? And Mm. not, how do I satisfy an angry God? And how do I love uh, is conditioned on the possibility of not seeking to justify always oneself, not seeking to organize the world so that it always confirms you, being able to live with ambiguities and therefore love you, both yourself and you the You've got to know you're the beloved in order to love. <laughs> that, that's right. And, and accept that you're beloved notwithstanding your shortcomings uh, and despite of those shortcomings and yet precisely in that to find motivation to live a life of giving for others. You wrote a book that I think is really excellent called The End of Memory. And I mean, I don't know if you were thinking with some of the issues of public life, but I think of like the amount of post-traumatic stress disorder we're seeing in soldiers. Uh, and then just what psychology is teaching us about early trauma in children. And, and mm-hmm. y- you talk about this experience you had when you were, y- you were constri- conscripted, right? When you were in graduate school. Yeah. I was just, uh, just about to finish my doctoral dissertation. And you, you couldn't say, hey, I'm working on footnotes. I mean, you, they call you go. Yeah. Right? yeah. I postponed it as far as I could, as, as long as I could 27, you got to go. If you got to ret- want to return back instead of, uh, and not going pr- into prison. And you were, uh, there was, you were married to an American, you're studying theology that it, it probably is a little, it colors outside the lines um, for the, the likes of, of the government. And you were really tyrannized by one of the base commanders, right? And interrogated and... Uh, yeah, yeah, my, my life was uh, kind of... I didn't know exactly what's going to happen. I mean, the threat was of um, maybe eight years in prison because I've done this or that thing, which they had kind of recorded because they recorded all the conversations that I've had with uh, with um, fellow soldiers about different things. I had my Greek New Testament. I was uh, reading theological, philosophical books. I was conversing uh, with them on matters that um, it turned out uh, these folks didn't think they were Appropriate. Though I must say, you know, I, I grew up under surveillance. Right? This is this was our life. We knew that my father was a Pentecostal minister. We knew that our house is likely bugged, so that no conversation that we um, have is going to be fully fully safe. Hmm. Uh, so that kind of a sense that you are under the watchful eye of the big brother was uh, was kind of normalcy to me it was also in the military service and then you kind of see what line you can you can walk in uh, in your self presentation and in engagement with others in a very difficult environment which the military service uh, service was and i think there it's not so much that i crossed some line for them I, I think what they really wanted is to conscript me to work for them mm. 
And mm-hmm. so they kind of created circumstances in which I would say things that could be interpreted in certain ways. They chose to interpret them in a certain way so that they could come to me back and say, now you see how nice we were to you. We just interrogated you. We didn't put you to prison. Would you please uh, work for us? <laughs> that was the idea. You talk about in the beginning of that book, like having these memories and, and the anger and, and the sort of, I mean, yeah, you're li- they're like screwing with your life on a moment by moment basis. It's, it's a traumatic thing. And but you talk about like, there's, Theological and moral implications to what you do with the memory yeah. of kind of the ringleader at, there at the base. And I thought, I, I don't know that most people, whether they're uh, sophisticated theologians or, or your average everyday person that's just somewhat reflective, thinks about memory as having theological and moral imports. Yeah, the, I am uh, in great part my memories. You think of internal conversations that you have with yourself, you think of the rage that sometimes we carry with us. Uh, you think of uh, the most beautiful feelings that you have uh, or thoughts. They're related to past events, which is, they are the modality of memory. <laughs> how, do I, uh, how do I remember? And it seems to me that even the acts of perception, that is to say, when I was interrogated myself, what I was perceiving and experiencing, that too, I believe, is morally coded. I can see this with a certain eye, or I can see it with a different eye. I think that kind of commitment to truthfulness, to honoring the other person, even the evildoer in that sense, mm-hmm. is kind of fundamental to who we as human beings are before God. After all, as I am remembering, I am being seen. Mm-hmm. Seen by, in my perception, seen by a loving gaze. Mm. And a truthful gaze mm. of that very God, which I may be betraying by the very act of how I perceive and experience things, mm. right? So, so, and in that sense, I find that the what happens in my interior life is crucial. My mother used to say um, always, uh, the most important things in the world, they don't happen in Washington or in Moscow. Look me straight in the eyes and kind of typical gesture she had they happened here mm. she was in many many ways i think right she didn't have much sense of how the world affairs uh, get to be reflected in individual souls right to be concerned so much she had interest in the purity of the uh, of the self who can live integrity before god and therefore act with integrity in, in the world but i think in many ways she's right and we can't lose that side kind of especially we can't offload to circumstances that which is happening at the level of our own perception and memory of what's happened Mm. what is happening and what happened to us as a theologian who teaches students like uh, mdiv students phd students what thing when you're thinking about just the future of theology and its vocation for serving the church bearing witness and you know being an edifying source of the church what thing are you telling your students like this is the thing that's on the rise that's important this is an idea or thinker that we really have needed and what thing are you thinking gosh people are paying attention to this but it's going to be out before it's in and it's probably going to burn itself out like what's the promise and what's the peril for theology today on the landscape yeah well, that will be a long, uh, a long conversation. I'm not sure that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm willing at this point to enter into, uh, 
into names uh, who are in and names who are <laughs> who, who, who are out. Uh, but <clears throat> and I, and I, my, my sense is also that the theology is a uh, it's a very diverse uh, endeavor, and partly there are is a kind of generic calling to be a theologian, but there are also specific callings to a specific kind of uh, theological work. And I don't think uh, that all people are alike and uh, all of their kinds of theological work will be, will be alike. And I think we each have to discern what is the particular calling for our, for our lives and what are the needs of the, of the situation. Now, as I see it, I see the need of the situation to kind of reflect in a compelling way the challenge of living uh, a life in the world that is pushing you contemporary uh, late capitalist uh, environment, which is not letting you take a breath and think about uh, what ought to um, be life worth living in which you are engaged, engaged that doesn't think that you should have a, a kind of uh, criteria or what is desirable, but, but wants to honor only that which is de facto, de facto desired unless it's harmful to uh, to others, and my sense is that we need to uh, renew reflection on the good life, on the flourishing life, and it, in fact, that this is what theology has been uh, about all along. Mm. If you say that the 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 purpose of theology is to articulate what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God. <laughs> Uh, both in within yourself and also within the world and kingdoms uh, righteousness uh, that that seems to me that can translate into ways of thinking what is flourishing life um, today at the individual communal and uh, if you want ecological kinds of levels uh, one last question you uh, in the beginning of exclusion and embrace you talk about how the the kind of development of that book came out of a, a paper in graduate school, right, that you gave in, in a seminar with Jürgen Moltmann. Well, actually, it came at the, at the invitation uh, to speak at the Society of Evangelical Evangelische, the kind of uh, Protestant theology in in Germany and in Berlin. So, but the but reference, Professor Moltmann was but he was he was present uh, there because he was the chair. I think he was chair at that time of that society. And so, after you gave the talk. He raised his hand and said, this is really good, but can you embrace, was it Chetnik, which is your own um, kind of ethnic adversary? Right, um, exactly. And you said, I'm not sure that I could, but I should be able to. Right. Where are you with that question today? Has it gotten easier, harder? Um, no, things like that don't, uh, in my life, mm. there are different lives. There are lives of saints and there's my life, <laughs> and they're not the same. Mm. Um, in li my life, they don't come easier. Hmm. Um, maybe who the Chetnik is, who the adversary is, shifts and changes. Maybe it becomes easier to embrace some uh, and uh, more difficult to embrace uh, other other people. But I find it's always a struggle because it's a struggle because there's something fundamental that's being violated, some sense of fundamental fairness some sense of justice. There's something that ought not be. Uh, some uh, assault on you that ought not be. And obviously everything in us then screams uh, against this. But you can't do that. 
right? So I, I find that it's always a struggle. What does it mean to embrace such a person? What does it mean to love the one who considers himself and acts as your, uh, your enemy? Uh, what does it mean to kind of resist without, especially when third parties are involved, resist without losing one's soul in the, in the resistance? Right? Mm. Um, those questions for me are existential questions. Those questions are questions that need to be resolved and struggles that need to be resolved um, and always, uh, always, uh, always anew. What I have come away with that uh, after I haven't written this book, and, and uh, I've said it uh, earlier, but this book was, I haven't, I, I didn't have an audience in mind when I wrote Exclusion Embrace. I didn't care for audience. I was the audience of my own book. I was writing it for myself. I needed spiritual, intellectual, uh, moral clarity. Um, and so I needed to write that, that book. And then in retrospect, after having written it, when I was in situations, I would hear this little voice, but you argued in your book. <laughs> um, and then I had to submit to my own argument <laughs> and my own argument became uh, a source of inspiration to me and justification for the life that I need, need to live. And I, I think that's how theology in many ways can serve really well. To me, that's how it serves, right? I come to clarity what is asked of me and what might be resources to achieve that. And then I stand face in face. And now it's the question of acting that way. Otherwise, I find I'm a kind of hypocrite. At least I need to aspire to be the vision uh, embodiment of a vision that I seek to uh, articulate. And it's this kind of aspiration, which I find also crucial for the ability to perceive that very thing for which you ought to aspire. It's kind of a circle that's going on. Jesus says, they have eyes to see, but do not see. They have ears to hear, but do not hear, right? Kind of alignment of the self with the vision to articulate the vision and then realignment of the self so that it be uh, aligned again and directed toward the vision with which it started. So it's a faith seeking, understanding, and understanding, confirming the faith in the circle goes. I think that aspiration is key to flourishing. And that's your latest book. And I want to commend it to all our listeners who take faith seriously and love the world and themselves, or at least are aspiring to love themselves. Uh, I think this is a book they ought to read. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. This has been great. And when the broken hearted people living in the world agree there will be an answer let it be for though they may be parted there is still a chance that they will see there will be an answer let it be Welcome back, the usual suspects to the mocking cast. Sarah Condon in Texas, not at home. Not at home. I'm at Holy Spirit Episcopal Church in West Houston. It's where my husband's the rector. They have a quiet office, so she's kind of a big deal. <laughs> she's a big deal. He's a big deal. Everyone's everyone's a big deal. And the animating force of the zeitgeist of Mockingbird, our founder and continuing inspiration, 
give me give me a break. I don't know what to say. These accolades, they just like like water off a duck's back. <laughs> David, you're and you're putting in overtime on writing this week. A lot of writing for you. You're prolific. Well, you know, I was sort of traveling for a couple of weeks and wanted to, uh, you know, I had some things I got to, I had to get off my chest. <laughs> we are glad you did. And before we dip into another weekend, I just want to say to our listeners, uh, thank you. You know, we've been doing this for a few months now, and the thing has been a work in progress, and it's just been uh, very touching. Some notes that you sent, and sentiments, and s- some folks who've been incredibly generous financially and things like that. And just, uh, it is great to be able to do this and we will continue to do it uh, long into the future. And our, our ability to do it is because of you all. So I want to thank you. Thank you for continuing to dig what we do. And thank you too. Oh, well, what can I say? You can say anything. I mean, this is, this is your First Amendment rights. I mean, like, you can do say whatever you want. Happy I look to forward here. to it. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always want to see what color bathrobe uh, Sarah's wearing, That's but today... Right. Today it's, it's a it's, baseball hat from <laughs> Ben and Jerry's. Yeah. <laughs> so something that I it just like, I am so thrilled that is coming out. It's just come out. It's a book called Seinfeldia. It's by Jennifer... Keishan Armstrong, Armstrong, and you guessed it, it's about Seinfeld. Mm. She says that actually part of her argument is that we all live in the world that Seinfeld kind of created, which is called Seinfeldia. And she thinks that this is, you know, uh, this is one of the kind of things that defines kind of the character of our popular and wider culture. And I think she's probably right. I mean, absolutely. Uh, or at least I know that I do. I live in that world. I was just watching reruns again last night, but uh, it's like a, it's like a um, immediate reference point for so many different little, you know, social interactions that you have. Uh, I, I can't get over it. Last night, uh, uh, oh, I, I think I was thinking about Fourth of July, and maybe you remember the episode where Kramer decides to create a little porch in the hallway, and the little kids all sort of. <laughs> gang up on him immediately becomes like a uh, Mr. Wilson, Dennis the Menace zone. And that just, I, I had the, it, for better or worse, it has infiltrated pretty much every aspect of my perception. Uh, even, even my religious perception of the world is, you know, the, the, the little things are what matter and career or achievement is actually not that important. Really relationships are where our mind and hearts are sort of focused and and uh the 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 the, they take nothing seriously but i would say we take the gospel seriously but uh other than that very little and so i i endorse almost like 95 percent of what i uh absorb through seinfeld i I was going to title my the book i wrote about music i was going to write it title it these pretzels are making me thirsty (laughs) (laughs) but um until uh one of the people I was working with said that has absolutely nothing to do with <laughs> the content of the book. You just want to have to write a book called "These Pretzels Are Making Me Thirsty." So there you have it. That yeah, Sarah, favorite Seinfeld. So book? this is the thing with Seinfeld. Um, I grew up with a father who loves it, which meant that like not want to watch it at all. And then I married a husband who loves it, which meant that like it's part of our covenant that I have to watch it some with him. Um, but I I still sort of watched it a little bit begrudgingly until I found Mockingbird because there's so much there about how I mean there's a lot about the bound will and about how people can't change and you know I mean from that perspective like I find it really fascinating 
actually have a favorite episode. I'll just kind of come in and sit, you know, because I'm married to my husband. I'll sit next to him on the couch and watch like 10 or 15 minutes of it. And it's very funny. But, um, well, do you have oh, a favorite Elaine. character? I love Elaine. Like, I, I completely relate to her. Yeah. Like, favorite. she's fantastic. She's <laughs> so neurotic. Um, I love Elaine. Yeah. It's interesting because when they did the show, they're like, one of the philosophies behind it was, no hugging, no learning. <laughs> yeah. So that, it is, you know, it's not, so some sitcoms are funny, but they have this touchy family moments and sentimentality. None. You know, my favorite part is when George wants to go to like this event with this girl and she wants to break up with him. So he's just like avoiding her. And it, uh, she, like, he's on the phone with Jerry. I got to go. She's calling. And I, you know, I got to make, I got to make sure the machine picks up. And his answer, his voicemail message is the, is sung to the theme of the greatest American hero. It's like, believe it or not, George isn't at home. Leave a message at the beep. Where if could he, were home, he be? Hey, pick up the phone. Where could he be? And you see, you see him smugly kind of loving the message. And like, he was on, a, he was on a talk show the other day with a couple, I think it was on James, um, who's the guy that comes on after Colbert? Oh, James, uh, Corden? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there was like younger, you know, like Jenna, kind of millennial celebrities or something. And they were like, we love that. Would you record that onto my phone? So she pulls out her iPhone and he's like, yeah, I still remember the lyrics. And they actually played the music and he like sang it into her phone. I mean, that is an absolute dream come true. I, I would, there's nothing I would like more than that. Yeah, I, I mean, my was, favorite is when uh, is when uh, the answering machine jokes because there are quite a few. When when George calls Jerry and he's he said hey, and it, like Jerry's playing the message back and says, "Hey Jerry, this is George. Um, I've got nothing to say." <laughs> and, then, and then it clicks. I mean, because that's so that's a lot of our messages, isn't it? <laughs> Just calling because it's something to do. Yeah, yeah. The other thing too is when George did the opposite. Oh, like, well. like, right, right, basically, he says, no, every day I get tuna, I, I want uh, tuna on toast. I want what's chicken salad on. All right, or not yours, like the I and a cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> and then that woman's looking at you, George. <laughs> he walks up in his intro line is, hello, I'm George. I'm unemployed and I live with my parents. <laughs> She's like, hi, I'm Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That that episode will it will never be bettered, I think, the opposite episode. When he says goodbye to his parents moving out, I want you to know you've been so supportive and I love you very, very much. Like, well, <laughs> opposite. <laughs> well, well this, uh, this is... And by the way, any of our listeners, um, maybe we'll make some sort of thing. Maybe we could use a fundraising tool. David, we'll have to figure out at what level does a donor have to give in order for me to record the George Costanza message on their phone? I will call it, I will use the studio mic. I will give you the audio file and I will imitate George Costanza and you can have Is me. Is that going to be weird if David like outbids everybody wow. else? <laughs> it, will, it, will, it would be counterproductive. It would be counterproductive. Touche. George isn't at home. Please leave a message at the beep. I must be out before I pick up the phone. Where could I be? Believe it or not, I'm not home. George, pick up. I know you're screening for Allison. Hey. So, coffee shop? No, I can't. She knows I go there. It's not secure. Hey, I got another call coming in. I gotta let the machine get it. Bye. 
George isn't at home, please leave a message at the beep. I must be out, or I'd pick up the phone. Where could I be? Believe it or not, I'm not home. From the ridiculous to something more sublime, people, Christians feel persecuted in this country. Mm. Do you this, feel persecuted, David? Well, I think it's it's the Atlantic uh, reporting that it's not just a few fringe Christians that are starting to feel persecuted. It's a lot. It's a lot of people that, and uh, persecution, of course, is a is a strong word. And I, I'd have to look into it to see if they actually agreed persecution or resistance or just a lack of unfriendliness or they embarrassed about their faith. But uh, this is. Uh, it sounds like the Brookings Institute has has reported on something rather substantial. And um, I, I don't feel, I personally don't feel persecuted, but I certainly um, uh, don't feel that, I feel that Christianity's uh, does, um, I don't know, its reputation is pretty, is, is, is bad and getting worse. And in terms of persecution, I do think that there is increasing amounts of resistance and um, you have to be kind of really... Um, what a whistling past the graveyard. Is that what they say? Or you have to be really, really optimistic to think that there's not the real question is whether or not that's a good thing. And I think that, um, you know, resistance or, you know, Christianity should never be totally in vogue or in power structures. You know, it's good for that to lose a little bit of its, um, prestige, but yeah, I think it, it, it has, uh, certainly, um, there is some, uh, opposition and and a lot of it's veiled but you people sense it you can pick up on things i think that it gets blown out of proportion in certain cases but i would not want to say as this the article in the atlantic i think emma green is usually a really good reporter but it's clear that she feels she has to hedge it so much and sort of psychoanalyze these christians where you know can't we take them a little bit at their word if they if they're all feeling persecuted at what point you say hey maybe there is a little bit maybe maybe they're not all like dreaming that there is a maybe, little bit maybe you're not persecuted because you're witness there it is powerful. there it is yeah yeah exactly maybe, you know what i mean maybe if you were put on <laughs> See, trial for being for being a christian <laughs> one would there be enough evidence to find you guilty yeah, yeah. i'm sure sarah's p- get <laughs> taking the heat everywhere so I don't know. I think whenever I run into sort of like more, um, you know, people who identify more as sort of like progressive Christians and they, they kind of downplay any form of persecution, I always think that that's uh, wishful thinking. Because, but I also think that it can be completely exaggerated and the victimhood, woe is me mentality takes over. Somewhere in the middle, though, there is a growing cultural hostility or opposition to um, what is perceived as Christianity and to deny that that's true is just um, uh, fictitious. It's, 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 uh, it's denial. That's yeah, what no, it is. I have, what do you I think, don't know. Sarah? I have mixed feelings about this. Like, you know, I'm from Mississippi. There's a lot of mega churches there and there's a pastor um, really close to where I grew up who stood in front of a huge congregation of people and said, we're going to have to go underground soon. It's gotten so bad. And, um, I, ha- you know, I mean, so I have, so I, I actually yeah, do push geez. back a little bit against this whole idea that we're persecuted. And yet, um, you know, there are a lot of people I know through social media who just hate Christians. I mean, and that's terrifying to me. I mean, they just hate us. And, you know, the thing is, um, yeah. maybe they hate a version that 
is a little bit different from my own. Um, but what I have learned in my faith is that those are still those people they hate are still Christian, just like I am in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I, I think it's naive to say that, yeah. that Christianity is not persecuted at all in this country. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you a hundred percent because I really want to, I think, I think that the, uh, the, 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 we got to go underground, you know, it's all retreat to the hills. That's, I think, ridiculous given how, right you know, there is a church on every corner and um, certainly Christians are vocal about almost everything. I right. wonder, but, if- but, but we don't hear Merry Christmas at Macy's. Yeah. Well, and one candidate has made that part of his platform. We're going to hear Merry Christmas again. If, if, if the I GFB mean, my faith will for sure hey, be deepened. I, for one, like feel much me. better when I hear Merry Christmas at Macy's. I don't yeah. know. My husband and I talk about this a lot. Just like, you know, the change for both clergy people. So it's like our sexy nighttime talk. And um, we, you know, he, he, I know, right? Hot. Yeah, wow. I know, right? Steve, and, um, this is getting, but he he's this always is like, this it's is a family good for show, us. Sarah. You know, like it's good for us. Like he's like, this is like in some ways, in some yeah. ways, you know, um, this is the easiest Christianity has ever been in people's memory. So like, you know, it's good for us to realize that um that we are rooted in the gospel and that that is not going to be an easy thing. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's and I may I may be weird here. Well, I mean that's indisputable. But on this particular <laughs> on this particular point, you know, I live in an urban metro blue state kind of area. Uh, and every time I tell people I'm a pastor, they think it's exotic and fun and interesting. And people, especially people that are on church. I mean, people I find it's a great like cocktail party thing. Like it, it, it people ha- want to know about it. Whatever. I mean, I, I I do not feel marginalized. I mean, now. The growing secularity, like, is, I mean, that's, you know, that's reality. I, but I, again, I, I don't think that always makes for a less vibrant church, but a more vibrant church. The other yeah. thing I was thinking, Sarah, you know, you were saying something about the Christians, you know, so, some of the people who really are, are antagonistic about Christianity on faith. And some of the people you understand, like, you, it's almost like it's tempting to distance yourself. Like, I see all the time people saying that they're not a Christian. They're not a Christian. Yeah, you know, Peter Leihart gave this great talk about um, the, the future of Protestantism and basically how he wanted uh, a Catholic Protestantism or reforming Catholicism. And basically, you know, that what he said is that I wish people realized they're already mm-hmm. in a church with people that venerate Mary. They're already in a church with people who who do things with icons they're not comfortable with. They're already in a church with people who say prejudicial, antagonistic, and terrible things that make their blood boil. They're already in a church that where there's, you know, arrogant intellectualism and anti-intellectualism. Like you can't, like it's, you know, if Christ doesn't cut part off the body, then at what point like, do we get to be the arbiters of, you know, who affects it, And maybe the hardest thing about this for what us not? as Christians, the hardest yeah. question we have to ask, well, then what do we do about it if we feel persecuted? Well, we love people. That's the hardest thing, right? Is that even in the midst of persecution, like there was yeah. this, not to belabor this, but there was this amazing story on Snap Judgment that I haven't written about yet, but it was um, 
a rabbi who moved to a new town and uh, immediately started getting really anti-Semitic uh, letters, phone calls. And every time he called the cops, they were like, it's the same guy. Like, we know who it is. It's the same guy. And um, so he starts calling the guy back and leaving these, like, like he's, he called them love messages on the voicemail. And um, and and then the guy, eventually, after several weeks, this guy eventually calls him back. And he's like, what do you want? Like, why do you keep calling me? And he's like, I just want to meet you. So he and his wife, the rabbi and his wife, go over for dinner at this guy's house. They get there. He's in a wheelchair. He's a paraplegic. And he's got all these rifles on his lap. And the guy said, the rabbi said, I was pretty sure I was dead at that moment. And um, the guy sticks out, the guy in the wheelchair sticks out his hands to the rabbi. And he said, I just don't want to feel this way anymore. And the rabbi grabs his hands and it began this amazing journey for this man where wow. he ended up moving in with the rabbi and his wife. They ended up caring for him as he was dying and um, he ended up converting to Judaism. And I mean, I, I actually can't like come up with a better version of like Christian witness in the face of persecution than that, that we get from this rabbi. So, I mean, I think maybe that's the harder question we have to ask ourselves. If wow. we feel persecuted, then how do we respond in the love that we're so rooted in? Hmm. That's beautiful. I think I'm 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 right with you and both of you guys because I think you. Uh, that's the question: is a if we're if there is resistance or opposition or hostility, that's different. A that's different than persecution. But like, how do you respond and whether or not it's a good thing? What I can't, what I what I understand, but I also find. Um, a little difficult to swallow is when people say, Hey, well, we're not living in Syria, you know, and like, uh, where, where, you know, churches are being bombed out and turned into jails and you say like, okay, well, you know, that's like saying I I've had a really bad day and well, you know, there are children starving in Africa. You know, it has, it's a way of minimizing a person's uh, emotions in a way that gets them to just shut up essentially and uh, bottle them up in a way that then comes out in a much uh, usually larger amplified version. I can't help but wonder if a lot of the sense of being persecuted is related to sort of social media and the internet where you, you can, you can access the most, uh, exaggerated voices on the other side of the aisle very quickly, even if it's a very small contingent. And then you think that's what everyone over there is saying. It's all Dawkins talk or something like that. And so you then, uh, you start speaking to those people and the marginalization just, it kind of is self-fulfilling. I I can't help but wonder how much of that is actually going on, how much of this is actually true. But there is also a cable news network that annually (laughs) declares a war on Christmas. (laughs) <laughs> and it sells a lot of sells a lot of advertising for people yeah. selling gold and you know, for, so. But also, we have another piece related to this. We're going to quickly look at it's uh, a piece that it was in the New York Times in Sunday Review by J D Vance, who's just come out with a new book, I think. But it's about the bad faith of the white working class. And this guy is a guy that grew up uh, is in uh, kind of white poverty. I mean, he basically you know he grew up in a white family that was incredibly sounds like socioeconomically challenged. And he was, he's actually analyzing the fact that a lot of these people who are white and, uh, you know, less formally educated who Donald Trump loves, by the way, you know, what they say? I did well with the well-educated. I did well with the poorly educated. I love you. The poorly educated. I've never heard somebody say something. That was great. I love, uh, but he's saying that actually these people, while they identify as Christians, they're totally cut off. Uh, many of them from the institutional reality of religious life, which tends to, 
you know, make you actually, you know, a, a more socially stable person. It's funny because I think people think that it's the educated elite that, that pull out of religion, but actually the studies show if you're a college graduate, you're actually more likely to affiliate with a religious institution because of social stability and social capital. So he has this really interesting piece about, about this phenomena of like religiosity, like, uh, without, you know, some of the softening of the gospel or the, the sort of yeah also we've got to say the title of his book uh it's called uh the forthcoming book hillbilly elegy a memoir of family and culture in crisis um i cannot wait to read that you know when i was reading this piece i mean this sounded so much like a lot of the people i grew up with and frankly you know a lot of my cousins who are my age um they're not a part of these faith communities anymore, but we come from families that are so deeply rooted in being Christian and having a Christian identity that they, that they have that. And yet they have it without the context of community. Um, and I think there's a lot of crossover here between this, this idea of maybe even feeling persecuted, you know, um, if your version of church is sitting in a living room by yourself, you know, maybe once a week and hearing someone talk about how persecuted Christianity is and you're not with like a big group of people in an actual space, uh, people who are different from you, um, people who you've come to love, people who bring you food when, you know, you have a baby or someone dies, then yeah, then you would feel isolated and um, disconnected. So, yeah. I, and there, the, but it's it's interesting that it's not. He doesn't just stress the communal aspect, which is a big part here. But he says that the uh, I think that the evangelicalism of his youth did necessitate a certain amount of self reflection and, and occasionally self criticism. This is I, um, but he said that the shift that happened in the eighties, where Christianity was seen as a much more external thing about affecting policy, the, he says a Christianity constantly looking for political answers to moral and spiritual problems gives believers an excuse to blame other people when they should be looking in the mirror. And that to me is um, a beautiful, succinct uh, way of saying that, yes, we've lost the communal thing. But one of the things that happens in that community context is individual self-reflection where you have to deal with your existence in a way that's maybe painful, but um, at least... provides a moment of non-distracted, uh, you know, uh, sorrow or, or self-awareness or some kind of humility that can really help you. Uh, or, you know, as, as, as Scott and I were talking about earlier this week, it's a, a Christianity that stresses the ethical over the existential is going to ultimately, I think, turn into uh, a legalistic form of whatever the ideological cause it's hitched its wagon to but if if you start with the existential which is certainly where we would start uh is the the um the personal the um you know uh does god uh, who am i and could god actually love that person then your uh then the ethics that flow from that are have a have a much are much lighter and more hopeful and uh if this community has lost that if this i mean no wonder all of those stats about the increasing um the suicide rate is actually uh, where where it's really gone up astronomically is among white working class men who just yeah. Feel- and, and I want to be careful too because like on one level I don't want to romanticize religion in the sense of like because you know like Karl Barth says like all religion is unbelief including especially Christian religion so institutional religion you know the organization can easily 
overwhelm the organism. But I think at its best, the gospel moments in church are like the transfiguration, where all of a sudden, everything changes. And you know, our temptation is religious animals is, let's build booths here, let's stay here. But you can't. You just have to wait for the next moment of grace. And yeah. you kind of and you and you live moment by moment in the in-betweens. That's me in the corner. something about anxiety, uh, which comes from a website I'm not familiar with, David. It's um, oh, they posted- The Mighty. I don't know either. Our friend Matt Fenlon sent this to me. Yeah. And it's this, The Mighty. Well, it looks like we face disability, disease, and mental illness together. And it's this very moving, um, um, you know, uh, pithy, but also uh, kind of harrowing account of what high-functioning anxiety looks like. Achievement, busyness, perfectionism. Basically, a bunch of the things that we tend to find ourselves writing about. And um, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a, yeah, a, a thorough cataloging of how the um, very strongly condemning internal accuser voice of the law of the not good enough, um, all the various ways in which it can... Um, it can kind of get the better of you and uh, that living with, but this is also really diagnosable anxiety that she's talking about. Uh, it's, it sounds um, excruciating and it is excruciating for anyone who knows it. Um, and even though, yes, it's not like living in Syria, it's still, uh, it sounds pretty, pretty miserable. And um, but the, 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 the sort of conclusion she comes to is this sort of, uh, the mindfulness, uh, stopping, thinking, feeling this panic uh, and allowing it to wash over you. And there's something there. Uh, one also wonders if the uh, contribution of religion, or at least of the Christian gospel, whether or not we have romanticized it, would be here that uh, the proclamation that whether or not you believe it or not, whether or not you feel it or not, that you are made good enough. Uh, you, God considers you good enough through, uh, through Christ. Yeah, she even says it's not the high functioning level is not a more noble way to suffer. It's not a better way to be anxious. Just because you're functioning doesn't mean you're happy. And just because you're functioning doesn't mean you shouldn't slow down, breathe, and take one damn second to be happy with the way things are. And I thought that that was a really interesting point about yeah. so much of this was accepting <laughs> that, that, uh, you're a mess, like, and, and, and that that is, yeah. So, I read this, uh, first uh, of way all, this to be piece, like this. almost sent me into cardiac arrest. People posted this, like, on my Facebook feed, and I just saw the title, like, just the phrase high functioning anxiety, and I was like, I'm definitely not reading that. So, when you guys sent it to me, I'm like, oh, um, yeah, but I also read it, and I'm like, I mean, not, to, I don't want to belittle anxiety. And I say this as someone who like when I've been in therapy and they have to give me a diagnosis, anxiety or depression, it's always anxiety. But like when I read this, I was like, isn't this kind of everyone in our culture now? Like, I mean, isn't this what everyone is experiencing? I mean, I think about, you know, the number of like teenagers I know who are on anti-anxiety meds, like just to function in school now, like this is, I mean, it really is speaking to just a broader cultural fabric that, um, I don't know that I think most people wake up in the morning with the, the, this kind of, um, this kind of narrative in their heads. And, and as someone who I know, I'm a very anxious person. Um, I mean, the gospel absolutely pulls me up from that. Um, and tells me, you know, 
not just that I'm enough, but that everything is going to be okay. Um, because God works things mm-hmm. out in God's time. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I kind of longed for that piece of, um, of Jesus in this when I was reading it. I mean, I know it's not a religious website, but I, I longed for, for, for that. Um, this, uh, when I was reading it, uh, at the end, the, the, a page in, uh, a passage on page 868 of Frank Lake's <laughs> clinical theology. Yes. He has this long excursus on Jacob and the conflicted self. And he says to see the face of God was so traditionally associated with dread as to regard the vision as deadly. Jacob was one of the few who persevered until in the place which he feared most, God was revealed to him. The conclusion of this history of Jacob's transition from an unstable character to a man who walks steadily with God is symbolized as you see him walking, even though lame, into the sun. As he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. As the master himself said, better enter into life maimed rather than insisting on retaining the wholeness wow. of a broken humanity be counted unworthy. Incredible. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, uh, I, I was thinking, cause that piece is, is she's talking about like, I, I, what I heard in it is her sort of, uh, inviting people mm-hmm. not to retain the wholeness of a broken humanity, like a false kind of wholeness and to, and yeah. to walk with a limp and we all limp cause that's why we're Christians. So if you want to know who the Christian, look for the people that are limping. See Thanks, y'all. guys. Yep. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Sarah. Happy Fourth. Talk, talk to you again next week. Happy, happy Fourth. Thanks for listening to the Mockingcast. As usual, you can find links to any of the content we refer to on our website, mbird.com. We love mail, so if you have a story to tell or you'd like to share feedback about the podcast, you can email me at scottjones at mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please share it with a friend or go to iTunes and give us a rating and write a review. And if you want to partner with us financially, we'd welcome your support. We exist because of the enthusiasm and the generosity of you, our readers and listeners. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week.